0: You're listening to Rural Roots, a Harris Center podcast that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? I am Boyan First. Geography matters. And when it comes to pandemics, such as this COVID-19 one that we find ourselves in the middle of, how we respond to pandemics is very much influenced by geography. That curiosity about geographically distinct responses to COVID-19 pandemic is very much behind two research projects we are going to talk about today. The first one was initiated by the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, our partner on this podcast. It looked at rural responses to the pandemic in Canada. The second project was initiated at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, and it looked at how small islands around the world responded to COVID-19 pandemic. My guests today, in order of appearance, are Dr. Sarah Minnes, who is the current president of the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and a postdoctoral fellow at the Conservation of Change Lab at the University of Guelph. Dr. Sean Markey, who is a professor and certified planner with the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Ashley Whedon is a PhD candidate in the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph. And Dr. Francesco Syndica is the co-director of the Strathclyde Center for Environmental Law and Governance at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, and he leads the project on island responses to COVID-19 with data from islands in 36 countries around the world. We'll start with Saraminas and a brief introduction to the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and the project on Rural Responses to COVID-19 Pandemic Day initiated.
1: Yeah, so if you've never heard of the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, which I'll call Surf uh, for short because it's a little bit of a tongue twister, uh, we were founded in 1989. um, And really, the pillar of what we believe in is uh, knowledge and better understanding uh, are really important for the welfare of rural communities and environments. So a lot of the things that we do is to um, mobilize knowledge in rural areas, uh, not only across the country in Canada, but also we certainly work with national partners as well. So when COVID-19 started and started to have real impacts um, all over the world, certainly we were hearing a lot about rural-specific impacts, and um, it wasn't being as... uh, It wasn't in in the media as much as people would like and there was a lot of questions that people were having and rural specific issues um, that uh, communities were facing in in, uh, the wake of COVID-19 and as we continue with the pandemic so We struck a committee called Rural and COVID (laughs) nineteen, and uh, we started to put some resources on our website that we could find, and we continue to scour the media right now um, for uh, rural related news. And we have a hashtag COVID nineteen rural. If you are um, uh, uh, sharing any stories to do with rural and COVID nineteen, as we're trying to collect all these stories, so we started our survey. Asking rural leaders, residents, and researchers to tell us about their challenges, concerns, and responses, and what resources they needed from us.
0: Sarah, tell me, uh, what are some of the questions that you've been hearing from the rural leaders?
1: More concerns than questions, I would say. And maybe that's the way that we framed our survey. But they're looking for access and capacity, and um, they have a lot of questions about safety during the height of the pandemic right now. So, um, you know, we started our research, our survey in the beginning of April, and we're finding that um, when we closed our survey at the end of April, we were getting very different responses. So certainly um, at the beginning of April, everyone was worried about virus spread, keeping communities safe, um, discouraging travelers and cottagers to uh, rural areas and ensuring rural healthcare systems can cope um, with the pandemic. And definitely we're seeing like a need for a coordinating of efforts and information, but uh, now we're getting a lot on kind of what post COVID recovery will look like in rural areas. And certainly Ashley can talk a lot more about that. She's been analyzing the survey for us.
0: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Sean, as one of the lead authors on on the uh, Research communications that's coming out of this survey. Um, What are some of the things that struck you as as sort of most prominent um, in the survey?
2: I think one of the really useful things about the survey is that it provides a cross section of rural concerns. We have decent regional representation. uh, And as we can see in the news, you know, COVID 19 uh, affects different places differently. And uh, you know, aside from being uh, a really valuable information source for decision makers, uh, many of whom I think lack really quality access to uh, understanding what's going on in rural places, um, we speak a lot in rural development as you know, uh, cuts to rural programming and rural governance institutions has left uh, senior governments, provincial and federal authorities, often with a lack of. Um, boots on the ground in terms of being able to understand rural places and get access to decent information about rural places. Uh, So the survey itself, I think, plays a really valuable role in feeding information up to decision makers. Uh, That's also very much one of the core values of, of SURF in terms of being a regional network of researchers and practitioners that care uh, very deeply about rural issues, and again can serve as information sources uh, for senior governments as they're looking to respond appropriately uh, to not only the health crisis but uh, sort of how to how to begin to open up rural economies again and and move forward in terms of restoration and reconstruction and hopefully you know future sustainability through some of the investment opportunities that exist right now. So, you know, that, that, that I think is one of the really core values of it. Uh, there's a danger in terms of um, rural policy rollout uh, that decision makers um, view rural places as all the same or attempt to sort of have one type of rural programming um, because, the you know, the diversity of rural places is tremendous. Um, from, you know, both in terms of degrees of remoteness, levels of capacity, uh, economic mix and makeup. So rural places will not respond, uh, are not being affected by the by the virus the same, their economies are not being impacted in the same way, and their responses will be different as well. So the extent that we can feed really good information up to senior decision makers um, and help them to best sort of tailor and deliver programming and investment supports uh, to get through the crisis. And again, um, move beyond that is is really important. How did you decide who you are going to send the survey to? I think it was a, uh, and you know, Ashley again could probably speak better to this. I, I think we adopted the mass distribution approach <laughs> of tr- trying to get the word out uh, to as many places and to as many email addresses. Uh, as many hashtags and uh, network people as possible. Um, you know, again, just in terms of uh, recognizing that people were in the midst of the crisis. Uh, so um, really trying to get as far and wide a distribution as possible was was the strategy.
0: Hmm. Ashley, as, as sort of the chief analyst on the project, you have seen all of the data. What struck you as sort of most significant finding coming out of that survey.
3: Um, so I, I think that that some of the the most interesting things to to look at as far as that's going is is this desire for more specific rural responses. So people really being concerned that their own experiences of how this was impacting them and their communities um, were' not being heard. I think probably one of the most startling, Um, maybe quotes from a response that came out was, I'm worried that we're just wallpaper. Uh, And I think that um, that was in reference to this idea, particularly around the tension between kind of year-round residences in a a community and seasonal residents um, wanting to come and visit during this time or wanting to go somewhere that they perceived as safe during the pandemic, um, was this idea that you know, I live in this community uh, year round, um, I understand, you know, the the pressures on, on maybe the local grocery store or on my local hospital, or if there is a local hospital, um, you know, that if they have an ICU bed, they might have one and it might be fueled by a portable respirator that's used in ambulances rather than a, a true ventilator. Um, that concern of saying, well, I'm just part of the scenery when it comes to people that are looking to come to these places as an escape. Um, and so I thought, you know, like that's a really striking, very human story on, on being concerned about just being part of the background rather than a a central part of how we think about surviving and then essentially, and then getting to a point of recovery from the impacts of COVID. Um, some of the other really interesting stories that were coming out, um, that were perhaps, I think maybe a little bit more comforting or a little bit of a reminder around, um, some of the, the more positive stereotypes when we think about rural communities was a real care and concern for how do we take care of each other. So um, concerns about the vulnerability of, of local healthcare systems, of the ability to handle um, sort of a surge in in demand for those services, but at the same time, how do I make sure that no one's falling through the cracks? How do I take care of um, sort of older adults or people who are more at risk from, from contracting uh, the COVID-19 virus? Um, how do we extend better mental health supports, how do we ensure that, um, you know, students who may not have the same infrastructure as their urban counterparts don't fall behind as we move to online learning. Um, The real strong narrative coming through in, in the concerns noted by residents really had to do with how do we take care of each
0: other through this period. Your responders, did they come strictly from Canada or did you distribute the survey outside of Canada?
1: It was
3: all uh, all Canadian responses, at least where where respondents indicated where they were coming from. So um, it was six open ended questions, uh, and within those questions, we asked, you know, what community, you know, how would you describe yourself? What community are you coming from? All these kinds of sort of more um, more more open ended responses. So in there, people might have said, you know, a specific business that they were operating, or they might have just said a region in a in a in, in a part of the country. But they were all Canadian, uh, where Respondents indicated where they were coming from. Mm.
0: Francesca, you did something similar, but with a different geography. And uh, from our previous conversations, I think your method of distribution was somewhat similar as well. Tell us a little bit about the project you are running at Stratclyde.
4: Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Boyan. Uh, yeah, there, there, are, there are some striking similarities to what has uh, been done in Canada. Uh, it, in a nutshell, what, what the centre at Strathclyde, which I'm the co-director, have done has done is some six weeks ago, so around the 20th of March, uh, when the situation also in the UK was, uh, well, it was clear that things were not going particularly well, uh, we decided to try to gather as much information on how island and island communities were dealing with uh, COVID-19 and uh, the goal of that was very much of mobilizing knowledge. So that's the first striking similarity that I, I can see with the previous, uh, the, the previous survey that was mentioned. And the idea was really about sharing practices, sharing practices from island communities. And uh, again, another thing that was very similar, you said the mass distribution approach. Absolutely, we did the same thing. And actually what worked really well for us was joining forces. Uh, we joined with Island Innovation, which has a very wide range network around the world of island and island communities. And between us and them, we really have reached out quite, quite extensively. And I'm very pleased to say that now we have information on the webpage and in the data from islands across 36 countries around the world. So almost anywhere, you know, from the Falkland Islands and the South Atlantic to South Pacific Islands, to islands in Europe, to islands in Canada, there's a lot of information that came out uh, from there. And uh, so, yeah, so there, there, there's, there are some similarities in the approach and in into whom we sent it. And I think also one thing that was mentioned is very similar is that, I mean, let's face it, I'm sure in Canada it's the same. Policymakers are taking decisions on a daily basis and uh, they are looking everywhere for data, for science, if you want. And, uh, and the idea was precisely this, to have practices, to have stories to be shared from islands, from island communities, uh, obviously understanding that what may work or may not work in an island in Scotland will not necessarily work in an island in the Caribbean. But one of the things when you do work with islands and island communities is that there is something that does bring them together. And uh, island community stakeholders, even policymakers will look with a certain degree of interest to examples from other islands, even if they're not their neighboring island. So really that was the, the trigger for the survey and the trigger for the responses, which have been incredible.
0: Francesca, what are some of the sort of key findings that emerged uh, from the survey responses?
4: Yeah, so again, there's some similarities to what has been said. I'll I'll, I'll start with one. Uh, The relationship between the mainland, uh, the urban areas of the mainland in particular, and the islands, in this case, the rural areas, if you want. And uh, I can think of responses from France, Sweden, from Japan, from the UK, from Scotland, uh, where, especially in the early days of the pandemic, you would have people that sought almost refuge, as uh, uh, I was discussing also with you, Bojan, in Croatia, a refuge on islands and uh, like uh, a safe heaven to 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 spend the weeks of lockdown and so forth. And this does raise an issue of the difficult, sometimes difficult, not always, but sometimes difficult, almost tension relationship between mainland and, uh, urban and rural areas or even islands. And I think this resonates to what um, I think Ashley was mentioning about uh, the people living in rural areas as part of the Landscape, let's say, when actually they are—you know—they're obviously they're human beings. They're part of society, and uh, and there's this tension that has been in some places, in some islands, a bit, uh, you know, uh, brought even more to life with the pandemic. Other things that have come out quite strikingly are positive stories. So again, very similar to what was just said: the sense of community, the sense of the sense of togetherness. Uh, some of the islands that have responded are, in terms of inhabitants, incredibly small, if you want, you know, talking about hundreds of people on the island. Uh, most of them will know each other. Most of them will have reacted together to this pandemic. And anything from, uh, you know, identifying who's more vulnerable and trying to take care of that, obviously in a virtual way, most most of the times. Uh, and another thing that I found, which actually I would be curious to know how it how it plays out in Canada is that on some islands, and this it happened in Scotland, but for example, also in Spain, they have not been affected very much, but still they have complied incredibly well with the quite stringent rules of social distancing and uh, all that kind of stuff, and actually showing incredible resilience and incredible strength uh, when one could have thought, well, I mean, you know, there's this island, there's not one case, and uh, I don't, I don't You know, why should we bother? So, I think there are some similarities. I will finish this part. I mean, I think there's one thing, and I'm curious to know whether my colleagues in in Canada think the same. Obviously, there's a part of the survey also for our survey that focuses on the now, what has happened, also, you know, quantitative data. But the survey, at least our survey, now is moving to a second phase, which is okay, there's countries are starting to relaxing their lockdown and are actually starting to think of the post-COVID society economy. And, uh, and I think this pause, whether we like it or not, with COVID-19, what it does, it highlights both the strengths of a community, but also those areas that are more fragile. And when it comes to island and island communities, I could think of tourism, I could think of food security, which are not areas of the economy which are neither bad nor weak, quite the opposite. Actually, tourism in some areas, I'm sure in Canada it could be the same, are actually quite strong and are what drives people to these islands. But when you have a shock, be it a pandemic, but in some areas of the world, it could be also climate change, uh, that specific driver of the island uh, is very fragile. And I think this COVID-19 if you want, unfortunately, but it does provide the opportunity to reflect on how to make those sectors of society more resilient, more sustainable, and uh, almost, you know, shockproof, if that's even possible.
0: That's a great. That's a great answer, and a couple of great questions. Anybody feels particularly uh, eager to answer one of those questions that Francesca just asked about what is happening post-COVID. And um, any reflections uh, you would like to offer on what you just heard from the islands around the world?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, Francesco, you're right on the money in terms of how we're thinking about our survey as well. Um, as I was mentioning, the answers that we were beginning getting at the beginning of April and the answers we're getting now are, are quite different as people kind of move forward um, to thinking about recovery. So that's why we... Um, are addressing this somewhat in something we're calling uh primers i think we're going to call them but they're they're research papers essentially four to five pages on certain topics that communities have identified as important to um to them so our our first primer for example is on supporting rural recovery and resilience after covid19 um, so certainly sean and ashley maybe want to speak a little bit to that but then like Francesco was saying, we also want to come up with a, a another follow up survey to this first initial survey, maybe in a couple months, to see where people are at. Though respecting, you know, people might be getting survey fatigue, but it would be really interesting.
0: Sean, did you want to say a few words about the first primer and any reflections that you can offer?
2: Yeah, certainly. Um, the uh, we've been working with uh, Ryan Gibson and Heather Hall, um, Ashley and myself, and Sarah Menes. Uh, to, you know, put together at least an initial piece to help senior governments and policymakers both to sort of conceptualize how rural places are being impacted by COVID, but then offer up some ideas and solutions for uh, economic recovery. And part of it has also been recognizing that, you know, there are things that we can learn from previous downturns. Um, uh, previous recessions and sort of the early '80s and the 08 on 2008 2009 recession obviously um, provide some some insights. I, I think also you know one of the one of the key messages was that you know rural places are uh, particularly in a Canadian rural resource setting are used to booms and busts and downturns. This one is obviously much more severe and has other factors layered on top of it. It's not simply a, an economic crisis, but obviously a health one as well. Um, but you know, some of the lessons from what we, we know in the past is that um, place matters. And that again, speaks to how to tailor policy responses to specific rural conditions. Uh, we know also that uh, industries uh, move much more quickly than communities and senior governments. So we have to be very careful about how we work with industry partners and um, engage in sort of policy and programmatic responses. If we're sort of a, 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 um, expecting that support for for different industries will lead directly to community benefits, and sometimes they will, and sometimes they won't. I think there's a lot of concern around um, the use of shovel ready as a as an approach and and uh, term for getting stimulus funding out the door. Um, I believe the line that we used in the in the primer was that sometimes shovel ready can dig a bigger hole uh, because it means that um, dollars are going to sort of what's simply sitting on the shelf. Um, and often those economic plans might not be particularly updated or really thinking about and geared towards 21st century investments. Um, the opportunity that faces us from an economic uh, perspective uh, in addition to a climate resilience one, for example, is to use this type of investment funding that might be going out the door uh, to really put rural communities in a much better position going forward, uh, whether that's through the investments in green infrastructure, uh, thinking very seriously about uh, uh, rural housing uh, and retrofitting rural housing around energy efficiency. Um, I'm sure Ashley can speak further around uh, broadband issues and updating rural service infrastructure, so we want to make sure that and position governments uh, to be thinking very clearly about not only you know applying a rural lens to uh, their policy and programs, uh, making sure that what they're doing fits uh, with rural needs and and real rural issues. Uh, but um, and it, you know obviously not the best approach going forward in terms of sort of crisis driven approach to infrastructure renewal in rural places. But but nevertheless. Um, to to not lose the opportunity to really advance uh, rural investments in, in these areas that can help us going into the future and. Um, also help us to respond to the crisis at the same time. Ashley, anything that particularly struck you
0: in uh, Francesca's uh, Francesco talking about his survey on the islands? And tell me a little bit about uh, some of the things that uh, Sean was talking about, like uh, development of rural broadband, because we are now finding out that it is a key piece of infrastructure.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, in, in another lifetime, I, I worked in rural economic development for a number of years before coming back to research. And um kind of from putting that hat on from having been in those shoes, um, I would say, you know, both those points that Francesco and Tron and have made are, are really salient to people that are on the ground. So the first being around the vulnerability of tourism as an economic development strategy, I, I would think probably certainly in the context that I've been in here in Ontario for the last, you know, kind of 15 to 20 years, tourism was really um, bumped up as the alternative to uh, maybe, declining other aspects of the community. So if you had a rapidly shifting and you didn't know what to do, the next strategy was to market yourself as a destination. And I think that um, we're now seeing the vulnerabilities of of that sector to that shock. Um, The other question around that is in the absence of of that, in the absence of, of that as being your golden ticket to kind of getting out of an economic downturn, what do you do? And we're starting to see um, some municipalities, at least here in Ontario, I know of at least one and maybe a second coming on board, developing more longer term economic development plans than we've seen in previous history. So the town of Caledon, which is a sort of a, a relatively small center in a, in a largely urban county in Dufferin County in Ontario, has released a 10-year economic development plan um, just in the middle of all of this. Uh, and And that's a, a much longer window than the sort of four to five years that we might have seen previously. And I think that speaks to everyone now paying greater attention to exactly what Sean mentioned, the need to not think about just what happens tomorrow, but what's going to happen in the next five years, 10 years, 25 years, and how do we build resiliency against these kind of shocks? Um, Because undoubtedly, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's climate uh, events or uh, some other aspects of, of a shock to our global social and economic uh, ways of being, um, I think that the the consensus in, in the scientific community is that there are more global shocks coming and um, we just don't know exactly what they'll look like. And that has consequences from everything from how we plan for our economies to exactly as you said, infrastructure. So broadband being classified as infrastructure is really important in this conversation to think of it as a piece of critical Um, infrastructure that we invest in as a public utility. And what we're seeing right now um, is not only in rural areas, but in underserved areas of all types. So whether that's um, marginalized neighborhoods in urban environments, whether that's uh, lower income neighborhoods, whether that's, uh, you know, hard to get to areas in terms of building infrastructure. And that varies not just within provinces in Canada, but across the country. So building fiber optics in through the, the, the Canadian shield is different than trying to lay it in Muskeg in Northern Manitoba or trying to get it out to an island. And all of that speaks to um, kind of precisely what, what's been brought up before, the need to develop place-based strategies for how we're gonna roll out this infrastructure, as well as a renewed commitment to broadband as being a basic utility. Um, so we have, uh, that's going to be a subject of a primer coming forth uh, on this topic on broadband. Um, But it does necessitate exactly what we're starting to see come through our survey, at least, was this desire for the devolving of more resources and decision-making powers to local communities. Um, So something that's been coming out of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities is the municipalities are missing from this conversation around recovery. And they don't have the same debt-leveraging powers or other authorities that other orders of government have. And that means that it's really difficult for them to respond to their local needs in a way that um, is able to withstand some of these shocks. So they're, in a sense, hemorrhaging money while trying to continue essential services and also looking at laying people off uh, during a time when they should be doing the opposite. So that came through in our survey. I think that comes through in both Francesco's and and Sean's comments and certainly in Sarah's around the need to develop issue-specific responses that are also embedded in place as we move forward.
0: Uh, for my Canadian guests. Uh, any questions for Francesco before I start I hope asking mine? I
4: you don't mind, mine? if I jump in, because uh, there were yeah, by all means. a number of things that uh, both resonate, but I uh, that I want to question, but uh, obviously since I don't have the Canadian background, I'm actually quite curious. Uh, the first one is... Uh, it's all well to say that uh, we want to boost the funding to the recovery, especially for rural areas, but, and I'm thinking here in the UK, but also from other islands and other rural parts of the world, and also especially from developing countries and least developed countries, I mean, the amount of public money that is being spent to keep afloat the economy is absolutely staggering. I mean, the numbers here in the UK are like, I can't put the number of zeros behind it. So, I mean, what guarantees us that the same level of rural funding, of economic you know, assistance or just economic support, let's call it, will be there in two, three years' time? I mean, this is a huge concern for island communities, but I think for any rural community. I mean, I won't start with Brexit here, which obviously takes us in all different directions about rural uh, e- economic development, but that to me is a really, really huge issue. The the balance between the immediate recovery, the furlough scheme here in the UK, the fact that most people are not really losing their job because the government is putting that money. I mean, in other European countries, that has always happened, but here in the UK, that that's unheard of. So, and the funding that will come afterwards. But then the other point, which I think is very interesting and actually relates to the work I also have done here in Scotland is about, is about community empowerment. If all this idea of rebooting the economy of rural areas, or in case I also work on an island, communities comes from the mainland, comes from the capital state, be it of the province or, or, of the, or of the country without, and I say proper in brackets because everybody will have different ideas of what proper means, but proper input by the communities then we will have a slightly non-community-proof, non-island-proof, in the case I work on, uh, kind of recovery. And at least here in Scotland, the the whole idea behind the the Islands Scotland Act is to island-proof legislation, policies, strategies, so that if something like this happens, the interest of island communities is always at at the forefront, or at least has to be taken into account. So I'm quite curious from a Canadian perspective, whether these challenges between immediate support and long-term econ- economic support are also there. And this idea that has been mentioned, I think, by Ashley about the community involvement in this rebooting, if you want to call it, is is something that is of concern.
2: You know, uh, Francesco raises some some excellent points, and I think it's it speaks to the importance of the type of information that we're trying to put out to support bureaucrats and different departments that do deal with rural issues. Um, I think those positions within government and those places within government are very much advocacy-oriented positions in terms of needing to elbow their way into conversations uh, that are perhaps being dominated by urban-based uh, politicians, bureaucrats, and and programs. So. Part of that is the work that Francesco's is involved in, the work that SURF is involved in, is providing information um, that these decision makers, um, politicians and, and bureaucrats can use uh, to leverage resources for rural places. If there is going to be stimulus money going out the door, uh, we wanna make sure that rural places are very well positioned uh, with good evidence uh, going forward in terms of not only advocating for those dollars, uh, but to then use them appropriately. Um, you know, the second part is very much also once once you've attained that level of advocacy and are, are, are bringing rural dollars uh, to the table, how to use them wisely. And that speaks not only to uh, the future resilience that Ashley and others have been talking about here uh, in terms of adaptation to climate change, broadband, uh, ensuring sort of the strength and and uh, sustainability of rural services. Um, I think that also speaks to what may be again a re- uh, you know a return to uh, concerns as governments are looking to uh, pay for all that stimulus money that's going out the door uh, about the prospects for uh, returns to austerity and austerity budgets. So you know these these investments are needed not simply to uh, you know put people to work, uh, but hopefully, to build some resilience in that system, so that um, when a return to some of that austerity thinking, uh, if it if it comes to pass, and that's also very much a political decision uh, based upon the ideology of governments that might be in power going forward. Uh, but nevertheless, it 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 is something that uh, rural places are, I think, used to in terms of you know restructuring patterns over the last thirty years. Uh, but something that they should also be thinking very very carefully about right now. Um, in, in terms of uh, looking to support their rural economies and, and, uh, and, and infrastructure right now. So they're well prepared for that.
0: Uh, Sarah, given the complexity of all these issues and the limited time we have today, uh, what is next for SURF?
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned, we have our, um, our research papers that are going to come out over the next couple months. And then we may have another survey to check on uh, folks and see how they're doing. And then in um, the fall, we're going to start working on a state of rural Canada uh, just on COVID 19 and rural. So we're, we're in the preliminary stages of that right now.
0: And Francesca, your survey is still open and continues to be open because you're continually gathering data. What are you planning? So,
4: yeah, the, so the survey is uh, definitely open. And it's interesting to see that we're actually. Um, getting uh, people from islands that are actually approaching us, asking us, can we provide more information? And the answer is absolutely yes. This is a fast-paced moving scenario and uh, the data is actually outdated quite quickly. (laughs) So in a way, we do need people to continue to send us information. But a bit like the idea of primers, uh, the idea now is to, for Island Innovation and the center at Strachleide, to start thinking of uh, what to do with all this data. And, uh, and we are in talks with uh, partners around the world, both, both universities, but also uh, more NGOs and civil society organizations on, uh, on how to take this forward and uh, give it a slightly more research flavor. Although I want to emphasize that this has not started as a research project, and although it will take a more research dimension, the final goal will always be a policy goal will always be to provide uh, reliable data, reliable you know, information to those who have to take very difficult decisions on a daily basis. So, so yeah, so hopefully we'll be able to get some funding and we will move in that direction.
1: Yeah, and I should add to that, Francesca, you've jogged my memory that, of course, we have a few issues uh, partnership grant in the works with some of our academic partners, and we've been doing quite a bit of advocacy. So we've been combining efforts and meeting with uh, other national organizations with rural lenses such as the Federation of Canadian municipalities, and we're working actually quite closely with uh, Minister Monsef, who is the um, Minister for Rural Economic Development and Gender um, and yeah. Equality. And I think
4: all of this is uh, extremely urgent, sorry if I interrupted you, because <laughs> no, I'd, I'd, I'd actually be keen to know whether this is happening in Canada as well, because what's happening in not only in the UK, but I can talk about what's happening in the UK, is that there are a lot of discussions as to whether easing the lockdown can and should be done at different st- stages yeah. and for different places, yeah. and rural areas, and in particular islands, Are highlighted as, well, maybe we could start to open schools on islands, maybe we could start doing that on islands. But then what you also see is that from the government, from the mainland, they do it also with an idea of using the islands as test beds. For example, what's happening in the UK now, they're using the Isle of Wight in the south of England as test bed for the app that's being uh, deployed by the National Health Service in the UK. To see whether it can be helpful to live with the virus, and the responses from the island communities is mixed. Some people from the islands, and again, I'm curious to know whether this is happening in rural areas in Canada, are saying, "No, we are not. know, we are not guinea pigs. <laughs> we, we we are not there to be to be test beds of anything." Other islands are actually, and island communities are actually quite keen to start easing the lockdown and are confident that they can provide that um, hub of innovation almost if you want as often happens in islands. So I think the urgency for the work you are doing for the work that we are doing is is incredible and especially for rural areas and islands it, this has to be done in a very balanced and very careful way.
3: Yeah, I would just I would echo that Francesca that there's there's that really interesting tension there um, and, and I'm always curious about the motivation behind the what makes a community willing or not, because we see the same sort of narratives come up around smart cities conversations. Right. And, and this idea that rural and island communities should promote themselves as living labs. And I, and I always personally, you know, as a rural resident kind of bristle at, at being thought of as a guinea pig or a lab rat. Um, and I think, again, that speaks to sort of the earlier thing around how do we think of the people and the places? Are they? part of the wallpaper or are they part of the central story? Um, And and there's a lot of things that need to be considered there quite carefully in terms of who decides and how how are they brought into that decision-making process? Because sometimes the motivation for taking on being a test bed comes from um, concerns that if we don't take advantage of this opportunity, another one or a better suited one or one we more agree with won't come down the line later. Um, so it's one way of saying, well, at least we're being heard sort of in this way. Um, and that kind of speaks to exactly as you're saying around a bit of the noise that's that's happening around a lot of these decision making processes. So certainly, in Canada, the decision to leave um, certainly on a subnational basis on which province kind of opens up and and they govern themselves in terms of how they're going to handle that, that's being done. But the concerns around within those provinces are really interesting to note because uh, some of the things that are starting to come out now in sort of media coverage and stories that are happening, circulating particularly around uh, cottage country and those kinds of places tend to be uh, concerned about, well, if we loosen the restrictions now, our community that has so far weathered this fairly well will be more vulnerable as concern that a surge would come later to rural areas is certainly part of that. And I think all of this speaks to the need for having not just fast conversations, which we certainly need to do, and, and this sort of rapid research response is really helpful in terms of motivating, like mobilizing a network of of really insightful folks that are working on a number of these issues, um, but to have really deep and considerate conversations as well. And I think that there's some, in our survey at least as well, that was a big note that came through around the need for somebody to help me sort out all of the things that are happening right now so that at least I can make sense of the current information landscape and make better decisions.
0: And I'm going to step in and stop this insightful conversation because we are kind of out of time. Uh, I just wanted to thank you all. Uh, This has been fantastic. This time, We looked at rural and small island responses to COVID-19 pandemic in Canada and around the world. My guests were Dr. Sarah Minnes from the University of Guelph, who is the current president of the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, Dr. Sean Markey from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Ashley Whedon from the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph, and Dr. Francesco Sindico from the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland. And that was another episode of Rural Roots. I produced the show at the Harris Centre at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. The show is a partnership between the Harris Centre, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. You can find more episodes through your favorite podcasting app or on our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That is rural, R O U T E S, podcasts.com. I am Boyan Fierst.